Hi, everyone, and welcome to the ProVision Brokerage Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program, Eric Couch. Eric, how are you? And boy, I, I, I told you how much I love Tiger King, so I had to make this special for you today. We're getting exotic over here. Uh, you know, see, I, you never know. It was looking like specifically enough. One of our guests looks like the one that did the last Netflix Netflix special. I forget the celebrity's name. I'm like, oh my gosh, Darren's really connected. Mitch Michael looks like the guy who interviewed everyone for the social distancing last episode of Tiger King. If you guys did check out that final <laughs> one they laid out. What's that celebrity's name, Eric? Do you remember? Joe um, McHale. Who? Is it Joe McHale? Yeah, Joe McHale. He looks like Joe McHale for a second. I was like, oh my gosh, Darren, you're the man. You went ahead and got Darren for it? I mean, Joel for us? <laughs> Did you anyone, Michael, has anyone ever told you that you look like Joel? No, no, they haven't. But hey, I'm just going to write that down in paper. <laughs> I'll take, I'll claim it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So go ahead, and Eric, and introduce our guests. So Darren G. Davis is the creator of, and uh, of Tidal Wave Production. And he's got his crew here today, and we are going to have a wild conversation. So, uh, Darren, introduce everybody to us, and we'll jump in, man. So we have the writer uh, who I've been working with. How many years did we say, Michael? We talked about this yesterday. Seven? Six years. Six years. So I've been working with Michael. He's one of our. Uh, he's one of my biggest writers. We've done everything from, you know the Christopher Reeve biography to the Stormy Daniels biography to, <laughs> oh yeah, and there's a signed copy of Stormy Daniels right there, so, which you can't see, to the Stan Lee tribute and all that type of stuff. All right. So I've been working with Michael for six years. Um, we're doing the Tiger King, or yeah, we're doing, I keep getting lion and tigers and bears, oh my. <laughs> oh my. Uh, so we're doing the Tiger King comic book together. Uh, and then we have down below, it's like the Brady Bunch. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so we have uh, Jesse Johnson, who is did the cover for, the alternate cover for the book. Um, he's a Portland artist. I'm based in Portland, Oregon. I wanted to try something new and use somebody from Oregon. So super excited to have him on board. I've known him for a couple years. And uh, Joe Paradise, who cannot be with us, he had a family emergency or something to that effect. So, yeah. But um, yeah, you couldn't join us. But what's ironic about him is that his name is actually Joe Paradise, where Joe Exotic from the Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's his given birth name. So yeah. it's, it's just not stage name. Have him. Yeah, and I've worked with Joe a lot too. He, I started off with him, I think we did, because we've been doing biography comic books for 12 years, and he came on four years ago. Um, what's great about Joe is um, he's, in the 90s, they had this comic book company called Rock and Roll Comics, and so he used to do a lot of the biographies back then, and then he reached out to me because we're like kind of the next generation of doing biography comic books. And uh, we did like a ton of biographies in 2000, what was it, 12? I can't even, I don't even, it's quarantine. I don't even know what today is. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, for the last, Thursdays. 
<laughs> so for the last election, we did a bunch of Republicans because they were more in the limelight. And right. so Joe worked on like the Jeb Bush and, you know, Rand Paul, and we did a bunch of different books. And this season, we're doing a lot of uh, Democrats. So like Pete Buttigieg and um, Camilla Harris, and we're doing a bunch of different ones, so. Okay, I gotta grab something so that you can see based on your comments. Here we go. Uh -oh. Eric, prompt two today. There we go. I got my socks. Oh, Donald talks, <laughs> Donald Trump yes. socks. With, with the comb. I, I had a friend send them to me. I saw them online. I haven't had the nerve to take them out because it's so awesome. But it, I was dying laughing. I was like, these socks with that the comb. Look, that, doesn't just, look, that doesn't look real because I don't think he uses a comb. <laughs> I don't know that he does either, but I was like, that's hilarious. Michael did a biography this. on Donald Trump yeah. <laughs> so, for us. So, yeah, it's very, yeah, that's a fun one. <laughs> so we, we keep so with a lot of just FYI just with a lot of our biographies political whatever we yeah. do we always keep them unbiased so if you like Donald Trump or you like Barack Obama or you like Joe Biden or you yeah. hate Elizabeth Warren or you hate this person um we really keep them unbiased because a lot of schools and libraries pick up these books so we really feel like we do have a um obligation uh, but yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So you're, you're really, really trying to keep it unbiased. Yeah. And at the end of the day, yes. I don't want anybody to know who I vote for. Yeah. So. I, I always say I'm an equal opportunity offender. So, right. you know, I'm going to give you a hard time no matter who you are. Uh, as, a journalist, I, as a journalist, I, got, I, can't, I can't give, I'll give my opinion, but I won't say whose side I'm on. Yeah. Exactly. And so we try to be that way too. Even when you do a Bon Jovi comic book, you can't like say the negative stuff about him, but you can say, so it's, it's all of that, so. Interesting, right. all right, Eric, go with the first question because I have multiple questions to talk Tiger King with them. Okay, so, so you guys, obviously you guys, are you guys are making or you've made a Tiger King comic book? We are, we, are, we are in the process of making. So the way that this came up is <clears throat> I've worked, as I said, I've worked with Michael for a long time and we did. So at one point with the Stormy Daniels comic book, which she ended up now she's working with us. So like we did a different version about a year and a half ago and we got, we got calls from Michael Avenatti screaming at us. We got calls from her people. We got death threats. We got all this crap. And it was like super like scary, nasty. Yeah. And then a year later, she reaches out to us and she goes, I want to work with you guys. And we're like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, like, like PTSDing. And so this is a new addition. We added, Michael added three pages with Joe's artwork and Joe's artwork is pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so we thought when we first did the Stormy Daniels comic, we thought, what's the, be what's the best worst idea we can come up with? We, Tiger King. <laughs> so we're like, let's do a Stormy Daniels comic book. Yeah. So then Tiger King comes along, and then we're like, what? We can up, we can up our can't. game. Like, so, we can't walk past this. We can't no. walk past this. So, yeah, so we ended up um, talking about it. It was me, Joe, and Michael. I'm like, let's do this. And, my, and Joe's like, I'm on board. And yeah. Michael's like, yes. So it, it's the dream team of comics. And then Jesse <laughs> came on too. So, which so, is. You know, one of my questions has to be, and I'm going to quote, so, you know, it, this, this will be in quotes, but 
how are y'all going to portray that bitch, Carol Baskin? <laughs> <laughs> That's the part we're working on right now. Actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I start cheering up every time I see it. I start laughing. And Oh, my God. Actually, Daniel, come here for a second. <laughs> He, he does it really good. This is my husband here. He, he won't be on I, camera. He won't be on camera, but listen. I don't know if I do it all good, but that bitch, that, that bitch Carol Baskin better watch out. I've got, I've got guns for her. Yeah, he's super good at that. So, so we became, so just like the world and 34 million people. Yeah. We fell in love with these, this, I don't know if you fell in love with them, but. Um, you, you can't, it's like watching a train wreck. It's so oh, like watching a train wreck. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> And so with Carol Baskin, okay, and so this is truth. So what was perceived on Netflix, so we're working with PETA on this book. Okay. And so I have a relationship with PETA. I, I don't agree with like 100% of their stuff or whatever, but there's some stuff I think they do great, some stuff they don't, and this is the national PETA. Yeah. So it's not like the super not national PETA ones. Yeah. And um. So I know the head of PETA, he's a good friend, really nice. And I know we've done like SeaWorld campaigns with them. I did my first like naked or fur thing. So there's certain things that I believe in and then, but I eat meat and the first time I met with them, I was wearing leather shoes and I'm like, is this okay? So, <clears throat> so I pick and choose my battles with that. So because they were featured a little bit in the biography, in the, the Netflix biography and also the TMZ biography. Right, right. I reached out to them and they kind of let us in on some more information that was not in the Tiger King documentary. So some juicy details? <clears throat> yeah, so like one detail I'll tell you about is, so they show Carol um, like letting people come in and 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 look at the animals and like talk to the animals and all that type of stuff. Right, right. But what they don't say is that actually was a fundraiser. So that they made over $30,000 and the money went to, you know, helping big cats overseas and to help with that. And so Netflix didn't talk about that, but there was no cub holding. There was no like, you know, there was no touching of the animals kind of things in the Netflix or in general, there was none of that. And so, do I think she killed her husband? Check the meat grinder. That's all I'm gonna say. I don't know. That's the De Niro. Yeah, that's kind of. I think so. I think so. I think she. I. I you know, I, they say that they're actually gonna. They're investigating it again. I know, and I love that. And so. Sequel. I was trying to reach out to Carol Baskin out on my show, so yeah. I, I, I get, oh. uh, yeah. So I, and also the try to friend the guy from Inside Edition. Now we had uh, we got to interview David Lawrence today, who was from Heroes. He was the puppeteer, and he oh. looks like he's connected to the guy. So I don't think he liked Derek when you mentioned the Tiger King in that way, because I think that the guy that's from Inside Edition, if you remember that character's name, he really is hurt still and feeling really. He doesn't. He wants to forget about it completely. So it looks like David and them are good friends. Uh, he was just on that uh, the TMZ special, and now he lives in Norway. So, so that's what I'm saying. There, I think all of them are enjoying this to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, who knows? I, you know, I've seen them all. You can, the, the place where you have to really look is go to Cameo. 
And so people that don't know what Cameo is, you right. can get your favorite celebrity or whatever to throw out a shout out to you. There are <laughs> at least seven or eight people from Tiger King on that. Yeah. You could pay $100 for them to go, hey, you, what's up? Ah, happy birthday. Yeah. And they're on there. And I guess you can have that one dude have his teeth in and his shirt on or not. What was the one that <laughs> they're giving him a hard time because he never had a shirt on the first well, husband? Or yeah, now he, he has teeth now. He has yeah. teeth and he wears clothes now, apparently. Yeah, and he has that weird beard, so. Yeah. He said he just wanted to show off his sweet tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so how many, by show of hands, because you're all on video except me, uh, yeah. how many are Tiger King fans before the comic? You know, I think it is. A, I watched it all. Michael didn't watch. I I made Michael watch it because he's like, I because he he didn't watch the show when I came up with the idea. I was like, I'm like, because I said to Joe, I'm like the Joe Paradise. I'm like, hey, let's do this. Oh my god! And then Michael's like, I haven't watched it. I'm like, okay, you gotta watch it. And then I'm sure his wife Julia is like, oh god, but it's I love it. We I'm on my second turn. Jesse's watched it twice. Yeah, you, wow. I, I had to make sure my friends watched it so they understood the memes I was sending them. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you and know, see, it's, it's yeah. kind of gone viral a little bit, you know. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, come on now. It's, it's crazy, man. The Tiger That's... King's meme page, I think, has <clears throat> over 600,000 people following it, and it came out three weeks ago. Um, so man, we, we're bored in this coronavirus thing, aren't we? That's gotta be it. I mean, when I first heard it, I said, there's no way I'm watching it. Then I watched it and I said, this is best. Because, guys, I'm a former professional wrestler, full disclosure. And so oh. it just reminded me completely of pro wrestling. And that the guys <laughs> that were the lower card guys were treated like, the, and the Tigers were treated as the stars. And then they would be all used by the promoter who was the Tiger King. And yeah. that was the same thing, except the Tigers were the big things. The ladies attracted, just like in pro wrestling, all the, all the ring rats. The same thing happened with this whole thing. Like, think about the other guy. The mm. guy that... uh that was had like seven wives. His Doc Ar Arlo. Yeah. But in the in the TMZ show, they're saying that he doesn't have. He's only been divorced once. He has girlfriends, and they know about each other. So that's just as I said, from what he said. Hi everyone, and welcome to the special edition of Freedom from Addiction: Truth Just Below the Surface, and the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you, man? What's going on? Oh, I'm doing good this morning, Neil. Um, the program today, we're going to talk with the author of a um, book that I've just started reading. It's very good. It's a novel. It's awfully big. I think about 500 pages. And it's called Eye of the Moon. And this was written by Ivan Obolinsky. Um, Ivan has an interest in talking today about conversation communications. And so even though we'll tell you a little bit about his book, uh, we're going to talk primarily about that. Now, Ivan, what caused you to be interested in communications and conversations? Well, when I grew up, I mean, we were trotted out to meet various guests. I mean, I met so many different people from JFK. I mean, I was one. Um, I, I think I even peed on him when I was two years old. 
um, Jackie Kennedy, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, um, Princess Grace. Uh, we knew a lot of people and um, I had to learn to talk at an early age and to do it skillfully and, and even though you were a kid. And that was, that was interesting. And um, the more I, one day I, I watched my mother work a room. Um, it, she happened to have the uh, ambassador to Belgium there and um, just how she approached things. And it was magical in the way she just had people open up and people would talk to her and they would love the experience. And I thought that was an amazing thing. And I, and I realized though, as I went on, my grandfather also knew everybody and anybody. And um, it was a terrific uh, sort of, I guess, a, a model to go by. Um, none of them burned bridges. I tended to do that. I found that was wrong, but I did learn eventually to communicate successfully. And I think it's a real skill set that's um, basically being eroded. And I, I think we need to have it back in the forefront. Um, the reason behind it, I think, is fairly simple, is that Einstein said that, um, hey, uh, the most important question an individual can be can answer is, is the universe a friendly place? And um, with the individual's power being erased and the network becoming more predominant, um, the individual is a bit under threat. And so I would love to have it so that um, people can converse and find that basically it's not as bad as they think. Well, that, that gives us a good reason to have this conversation. This is an interesting one. First of all, I think for an individual, people have great gifts. And um, I think everybody does have one. But we don't really know what our great gifts are. Um, those people who are brilliant communicators, I've found, um, are able to focus their attention on the person they're talking to and to listen. And that is a big deal. In the world today, there is a tendency to the sound bite. I mean, it's a classic example. Uh, times is sort of compressed. The amount of time one has available for anything is less and less. And so, you know, that gets eroded. And um, what, a, what a great communicator can do is extend that time and allow the person, the other person, a forum. And that means pausing. And people don't pause so much. So that's one of the things I think that, um, you know, is the difficult. Does that make I sense? Haven't, I haven't. Somebody told me once, great communicators understand the fact that God gave people two ears and one mouth. Maybe they should try to listen twice as hard or twice as long as they try to talk. And, and actually, that's very true. It is a maxim I heard in my, a lot of sales training and actually one which I found to be extraordinarily successful. So... Um, now, now we know why you want to talk about this. I want to get into something that in our country, maybe in the entire world, is a big bugaboo as far as communication goes. Um, as Neil knows, I have done extensive research in people in other parts of the world who are 
using scam techniques in romantic dating sites to lure money out of the people's pockets. Terrible thing. And um, their communications are terrible. Uh, they, they don't want to talk to a person face-to-face because they know they can't do it. And they really don't want video communication. They just want uh, text messaging and, and other things which don't allow the other person to determination of whether they're being told the truth about certain things. So this is going on all over the internet and it's a billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry for people who are lonely and want to communicate, but either don't know how or don't have boundaries. Something is wrong there. What's wrong there? Um, the context. I think one of, okay, Thomas Kuhn wrote the structure of scientific revolution. And um, in it, he said that data is theory laden. What that means is uh, in the early parts when this was first being done, you could the idea was you have a whole bunch of information and you looked at the information and out of that you got a concept, a law, and then went on from there. So there was a truth in it. Um, the problem with that is that data as data does nothing. We all look through a lens and we all filter it in different ways. I, there's three things on this. First of all, there was a, a study done in the 1980s called the Information Deficit Model of Scientific Communication. And what that model was, they decided that people didn't have enough information. And so the idea in order to get across complex economic and scientific concepts was to give more information. Well, what did they find out? But people already had opinions on the information they were given and were rejecting them or not. When this was examined, it was discovered that talking heads, that is people voicing opinions one to the other, was the way to further communicate their ideas in order to get it actually better across. And that by doing this opinionated talking heads point of view, this could be done. And you'll find this started on the financial networks and then moved all over the place. And now it is pretty st standard. And so that that is one element on it. I, I think um, because it, it, it has to do with emotions, it's public relations and people are emotional. And remember, emotions are the quick down and dirty way to decide something. Um, critical thinking takes a, a bunch longer. Now, just as techniques go, two things I've learned that really have helped me. When a person starts getting angry, the way to handle that is to speak softer, slower. If you, you may even, if you got even a guy who is a complete rage, if you whisper, it will, it changes them like that. That's one of the interesting things. The other thing was Ben Franklin had the same problem and how he solved it 
because he was a very contentious individual. And when he went over to France, man, he was in arguments all the time. And um, he eventually said, you know, this is really not working for me, considering I'm supposed to be the ambassador of this fledgling country called the United States. So what he thought and how he worked it out was to ask questions. So when a person comes up, okay, he says, well, you know, I hate this. This is, you know, it's like, well, why do you hate that? And, you know, okay, that's one way to look at it. What if such and such is true? What then? You, you see what I'm saying? All of a sudden, you have to be able to control the conversation. And the way you do that is by using questions rather than reacting to it. And that sometimes you, you have to be able to not get your buttons pushed, I suppose. Right. That's the way to say it. <laughs> yeah. You know, Ivan, I was starting to think about this, that sometimes we show our poker cards in conversations and communication where we'll do something like a sniff that we just have no idea that we're doing or something that really can tell people that, you know, I'm not as confident about stuff. So how do you have that poker face in communication so that you're showing a professionalism and yet still be able to communicate and be yourself? I call it the glow. Um, a person, you know, it's the interest. It's the attention and it's the willingness for the other person to be there and say whatever they're going to say. And it's okay with you. And that is sort of a prerequisite that you have to get. And those people who are the great communicators, I think instinctively do that. They just, you know, you're there and you're safe and you can talk to them. And that is what, it takes, and in, in, in once you know you get over that, and because people get very defensive, so they put out their little thoughts, and they say this, and they blah blah blah, and they want a reaction. And when you don't react, but just still be there for them, and just say, "Well, great," and understand what they're saying, and you know, follow up, and you know, if they're really contentious, and you may not agree with what they're saying. You might ask them, well, have you, you know, see, have you heard about this? And they may say, oh, I have not heard. Or they may say, oh, I've heard. That's complete bullshit. You know, it could be any of these things. But, you know, you just, you have to query because everybody is, tries to do the best they can. And I think Tony Robbins said that. I think he was really correct. Everybody's trying to do the very best they can, which means that you start on a positive note. They're not out to get you. And once, but you have to understand how it is they think the way they think. And that requires listening because you don't find it any other way. This is when that's pretty interesting, you know, in that glow. I love that take, that glow, because the thing that makes me a great communicator and making and relationships is something I need to work on. Isn't that funny, uh, Ivan and Wynn, that? I am really good at communication, but I still have to improve in relationships. And why is that? And I'm going to ask when that question and also Ivan, when and what is your thought? Ivan, you go first. Okay, here's <laughs> my wife is going to kill me. Okay, here's my wife has something which she totally denies, but I think is a valid factor. She has what's called the voice. You should hear this woman on the phone. It's, I don't know what it is, but she has this way of just 
easing through your head and you listen and you like to listen to it. And it's the voice. And I think this is something that's really interesting. But just having the voice is not enough. You now have to do something with it. And I think be willing to, I mean, my, my wife and I work very well together. I consider she's the boss. I may have a tremendous amount of talent, but if you really want a good relationship, you have to sort of set your priorities of who, you know, really, you know, and you defer to them on certain things because marriage is a compromise. Relationships are a compromise. And you have to be able, like, friendship is, is, you know, you may say, God, he's awful at that thing. But, you know, he's my friend. You see what I'm saying? And that smooths the way to get the cooperation that you need. But, but, you know, Neil, you have that voice. I can tell already. It's very smooth. It's really nice. And it's, um, it's something that people don't look at because, of course, it's obvious. And I, I always believe it's the obvious is the most important thing because behind the obvious is often a lot more than you think. There's a... Uh been a lot of people over the years who have said to me, you know, I, I feel like that I can tell you anything. And I say, well, that's probably because of my longtime career as a counselor and as a host of radio and internet, that I give you the impression that you're in a safe environment. Um, is, is that what you're talking about? I think more, actually, I can tell you what it is exactly when it's your pacing. Your pacing is very, it's good. It allows a person to think it allows a person to, because it's quiet, you know, it's not assertive, but your pacing, your tone and also this slight Southern drawl is really, you know, encouraging. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but that's the way it is. Well, I know that there are dialects from other parts of the country that just turn me off immediately. <laughs> I, have to, I have to really pull back in order to do these interviews, but I know what you're talking about. Let's move on to uh, something else. Yeah, you said, you need to learn how to set better boundaries around who the people are talking to and what they're talking about so that simple conversations don't feel like negotiations. But you also said something that I would like for you to expound on, which is the four ends, like in Nancy, the four ends of negotiation that might help you with those conversations to become win-win conversations? Well, I think it's more a, a question of knots. You know, there's the famous one, my, my mom always said, well, don't discuss politics, religion, or that type of thing. You know, go with the weather. <laughs> I mean, that may sound really weird and almost, uh, you know, childish, but it's not. It's actually brilliant because if you talk about the weather and you find points of agreement and things and this, you can then start to bring in the other things. If there is no real trust in the relationship, there's no way you can really get across a deeply held opinion and have it matter. 
And so that's one thing. I think the other one was no, you know, no talking. I, I know that sounds weird, but you have to listen. And the reason that N is there is basically to focus on listening as opposed to, you know, shooting your mouth off. Because if you, and, and, and that also means no thinking while the other person is talking. And that is a tricky business too, because you're always thinking about, well, what am I going to say to that? Or instead of just, listening to the person and understanding what it is they say go ahead ivan i take notes that's it i mean and when i'm all, especially because I, I guess why relationships i'm much better in a client relationship than a personal relationship sometimes because i take notes and because my mind goes a hundred thousand miles an hour my top talent's ideation so i'm always figuring out ideas so i want to interrupt but when I take notes and I've learned how to even take mental notes in my head, which uh, that's really a skill set uh, that I either I take notes in my head that I'm constantly taking notes to remember certain things or I'm taking notes on paper or a digital plat like my phone that I'm able to stay completely focused on the person. If I don't do that, let's say I'm having a beer or coffee and I'm really just relaxed, I won't remember those things. I won't provide great value in a communication. So I, the way I've been able to really develop communication is to really take either mental notes, physical notes, or digital notes. That's a fantastic idea. I know my wife does that. She is really, She takes notes and she's really good at that. Um, I am not, <laughs> I, I, but, you know, but I understand it. And I think actually that would probably be the fourth end because, you know, I know it in the back of my mind, I suppose, you know, to go back to something. And also one of the things I think is you have to not want to create a big impression on the other person. We all want to do that. But that's something which is sort of a, you have to shut that down because otherwise you're just emanating. You're not receiving. And what makes people think that you're a great communicator is the fact that they said something and it went across and the other person understood it. And yeah, they said, you know, I really got that and I got you. And all of a sudden, they feel on top of the world. And so that's the other end is you just you got to you you're there for the other person more than you're there for yourself. And that's that started a whole other sort of idea, which was that, you know, people wonder what they want to do in life. And, you know, they ask themselves and, you know, how can I get this and how can I get that? But they very rarely ask, you know, what does life want from me? And I think one of the things that you have to do is be willing to have no agenda for life to tell you. Because life tells you all the time, it is, you know, it has far more data points than you do. <laughs> it is the more powerful. And you have to listen to it. But if you have an agenda, you won't. And I think that's the, a, a critical thing in having great conversations. It's the surprise factor. People don't see that. It's the surprise of, whoa, 
what did that person just say? And it sort of clicks on this one. And that's also what to do. I have to do with writing too. You know, it's like you have a plot, but you know, I don't have a plot. I just write. And so many surprising things happen when I'm doing that. And I get interrupted all the time and people say, oh no, you shouldn't be interrupted. And I say, I love to be interrupted. It changes the entire plot by the time I come back. And it's really true. So that's, that's another factor that, that makes sense to you. I wanted to um, um, add something into the conversation that I have learned in the past from people who are salespeople and in terms of negotiation. And the tip is this, first loses and let the other person talk. Ivan, yeah. you sent me 40 talking points. Obviously, <laughs> we're not going to be able to get to all of them, although I wish we could because you're so fluent, educated and, and observant on, but, Number four on your list was, what is a suicide? Now, tell us what you meant by that, would you? Sure. I think we all make assumptions. I mean, initially, all you have is what you see or what you hear. I mean, that gets more interesting when, you know, you have, um, when you're doing it on the internet, you receive an email and all you get is an email address. Um, one makes assumptions. Uh, you know, it could be the way a person dresses. It could be, you know, oh, this guy's rich, so he's he, he's a jerk. Or this guy's poor, he's a jerk. You know, it could be, you know, it's like you have these assumptions or you think that, oh, you know, the person is just really upset, but you have no idea what's really going on behind that. And if you don't, you know, take the time to put those aside, or to verify them, you make mistakes because information that, you know, the, the world that's real is not the world in your head. And so you're looking at a world that is basically not true and mistakes happen as a result of that. Poor decisions get made. And what you have to do is hopefully your world reflects, you know, the world that is in actuality. And, Assumptions are something that we do all the time because we're pattern people. You know, humans are create patterns. They love patterns. You know, give them a mosaic and they'll see something. Put up a cloud, nature does it all the time. Oh, there's a camel. You know, it's just, that's what we do. And so we do that on a regular basis and, and, and that can be not good. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to say it. It just, you have to go and you have to go into something with an open mind. And that is very, very difficult because we do have that proclivity. Um, one other thing I just wanted to point out was that one of the ways to really, I like writing dialogue. And in some ways my characters are larger than life and they are because I get to consider what they say. And I may consider a great deal and spend a tremendous amount of time working out what it is they say, even in a simple dialogue. And so it's very considered. And so the people act in ways which are almost bigger than life. And, and that's, that's, a, that's something interesting because I think when you assume you go off your first thought and you don't 
do the considered thought. And it's usually that considered thought, which is the wiser one. Does, does that make sense? Ivan, um, so we're getting toward the end of our program and I want uh, to let you read us a short segment of your book, Eye of the Moon, to show people how well a writer you are. I know you've gotten awards and, and everything. Uh, for the people who like to read novels, uh, maybe this would give them uh, a little extra interest in picking up a yeah. copy of your book. Absolutely. And um, these boys, they, they want to know why uh, this woman was, you know, why she died reading the Egyptian Book of the Bed. They're trying to find out something about her. They discover a letter. The letter starts, dearest, I am sorry we fought and that I upset you. Please understand, it is no easy matter for me to write about thee. I would rather not even now, but I seem to have no choice if we are to continue together. You are so jealous. That green-eyed monster lives inside you like a beast. You need to lock that away. Promise me you will, please. I have the figurine en route to me. It does not look like much. Such things never do, but I am relieved to know it is safe. So how did all this happen, you wish to know? Do I still love him, you ask? How could you? I am sickened to think that you would even consider the thought. But what can I do? I can only repeat over and over that you need worry yourself. You will anyway, but I suppose that is my cross to bear. What follows will ease your mind, but then again, it may not, for reasons that will become apparent. I'll leave you it know. at that. That's perfect. And where can we purchase your book, Ivan? Where's the best place? Um, Amazon is always good. Um, there's it's Kindle. Then you read that one, and then you read the second one, Shadow of the Sun, which uh, I, is really good too. And um, but Eye of the Moon is terrific in the sense that it's it's a mystery and it is intriguing and it's intelligent, and that would be a good reason to do. absolutely. And also translated into Spanish as well, so the global That's community can like this and this is exciting for sure. When best place again for you real quick is, is gonna be revwinhendersonmd.com and also uh, check you out by just searching freedom from addiction on Lipson. Hi everyone and welcome to the Mike Velarde Show. I'm excited to welcome the program, Mike Velarde. Mike, what's going on, man? How are you? Good, Neil, how are you? Before we introduce our guest, censoring has begun with the whole Spotify thing with, again, so that talking COVID could get us banned on Spotify next. And that's not a good situation as they're already taking down stuff. So Joe Rogan could be next. One of my clients stuff got taken down from Spotify today uh, for misinformation involving COVID. So they really are not telling the truth, Spotify. So I want to tell people that maybe we're going to have to have a disclaimer never to write down. We're talking about COVID on the Mike Velarde show, but that's what's the new news out uh, regarding it. All right. Well, we won't, we won't, we won't talk about COVID. Um, we'll talk about other things like um, since Joe Biden made his decision to reverse Trump's policy last week, less than two weeks ago, actually, oil is now over $90 a barrel. It was $78.50 when he made that decision. And now it's over 90, up $2 today. So we're going to $100 a barrel. We're going to see $4 gas in March. And um, this has to be a planned event because no, nobody could be that stupid. 
No, they, they, they can't be. You, that's a great point you're making, Mike, is they, they can't be. And so our guest today, what are we going to be chatting with him about? He's going to we're talk about the grand jury process, how, what ways we can get America back, um, because that's what we have to do. We have to take our country back. It's been hijacked by the far left. And, um, you know, I don't believe for a second that this guy could have the lowest ratings in 150 years and be the most popular president ever. It just doesn't add up. The math does not add up. Joe Biden ran for president three times, never won a primary until he won South Carolina, couldn't win the caucuses in Iowa, got drilled in New Hampshire. All of a sudden, he's the most popular president. Yeah, right. Who's buying it? All right. So, so I'll introduce David. David, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Welcome to the Mike Bellardi Show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Mike. Nice talking to you yesterday. Yeah, I totally agree with a lot of stuff you're saying. Yeah, my history has uh, gotten involved because I became a victim of the system. So um, I'm a, an auto mechanic, electronic technician by trade. So I just started diagnosing, going to law schools, reading case law, just really trying to break down the system. But really, what did our founders put in place? Is this the system that they gave us? And, and this is how dysfunctional is supposed to operate? You know, what holds these people accountable? Who, who's really supposed to count the ballots? You know, who's supposed to police over this? You know, how did they intend it to work? And uh, this is what a lot of my studies are based on. And then that's what I'd like to share with you. And that's what Stalin said. It's not who votes that counts. It's who counts the ballots that counts. Exactly. hundred percent. And that's what we saw in Pennsylvania. We saw it in Georgia. We saw it. We saw it in Wisconsin. We saw it in Arizona. Um, we saw it all over the country. I mean, Trump won, 10, he got 10 million more votes than he did in 2016. That's never happened before. Where a president running for re-election gets more votes than they had in the prior election and then loses. So it's, it's, it's almost impossible to do. They yeah, made who, who's, yeah, who's supposed to police over that? Who, who's yeah, really so, supposed so to, are we, trust, yeah. are we to trust government for investigating that? No, you especially know, that, the people that are at the ballots. How can we trust those people that are volunteers mostly or paid very little to not be corrupt in some sort of way? Right. And, that, and that's why Senator, um, I mean, Governor DeSantis uh, asked the state legislator just a couple of weeks ago for six million dollars to have election police, 52 full time election police. All they will do is do election fraud stuff. And on election night, they'll be in the places where, which are most notorious for fraud. And if they see fraud, they're going to make arrests. I think that will make a difference. I think that's what every state needs is, you know, if we're going to really have fair elections. I mean, in New York, I have a friend of mine who I work with on the job. And when he went to vote, now he's a junior, his father's a senior. He noticed his father had voted. And he said to the guy, that's not my father's signature. The guy said, don't worry about it. He voted. Don't worry about it. He says, my father's been dead five years. He couldn't have voted. <laughs> but what they do, because he was a registered Democrat, is all the registered Democrats that die all voted for President, um, President Biden. And that's how you have a one-party state. You see it in New York, you see it in California. In California, in the recall election, people were going to vote and they were told, you already voted. You can do, a, what do you call a ballot? But, but you already voted. I mean, it's rampant. It's absolutely rampant, and the right does nothing. And the left is just running roughshod over everybody. That's why, but, that's why, I, really, that's why I really believe that our founding fathers put a system in place to keep it in check. And Because when you look at voting and anything with elections, it's rule of majority. That's a democracy. 
a rule right. of majority. And that, a democracy is not mentioned in any of our founding documents. A republic is. Right. And so as I start looking into, into, you know, is this really what they intended? Because realistically, a person with a lot of money, a lot of influence can, can affect the outcome. And what do you have? Then the majority have the power and the minority have no rights. And that's not how it went. That's what I discovered. It's like, wow, this, here's a system. It's a lot of people call it the hidden fourth branch. And, you know, Scalia had multiple uh, case laws quoting the power of the grand jury yet it's not being used. Even in the New York State Constitution, it's actually mentioned in the New York State Constitution. Yes, people, states do have constitutions. <laughs> but a lot of people don't realize that. So I found that um, right in the New York State Constitution, it states that the grand jury is supposed to investigate public offices and then write reports if they don't find an indictment. And writing reports is writing what they how they want government to change and i found history in new york law that the grand jury has told local governments how to change things and they had to change it so i, I found that quite intriguing and that power has never gone away it's just our ignorance has gotten so uh rampant that we don't know that the power exists no, well, I mean, you've got a situation where one side wants to keep it corrupt see but mike and it's going to continue to be that way if you have such a Right. Just misinformation on both sides, meaning of how people aren't trusting the media. It's mm-hmm. going to be that one on one relationships. And if we're in lockdown or we're afraid to really socialize, we can't get into communities to talk about these things and say, hey, here's what's happening. This is really happening. Here's the proof in the pudding. So like when you have this proof of election fraud, the only way to educate somebody on the left is to show them factual proof that it happened, a factual link, a factual article, a factual video. And if those things are not allowed, David, to be put on television, they're not even allowed to be on Fox. How can you educate people to really believe there's election fraud? Well, this, that's, we, Mike and I were talking about that yesterday. So, so there's a process that was put in place hundreds of years ago for the citizens to police over the elections. It's called the committee man, the precinct captains. And every party has them. Like here in New York State, uh, we have uh, committee elections where you're part of the party committee. And it's, it's simply little five blocks of your house. And your purpose is to police over the elections, to watch how the voting is counted, to, to approve how it's done. And you appoint the commissioner board of elections. So here in New York State, it's pretty bad. I'm not sure how other states, but when you walk in the board of elections, it's Republicans over here and Democrats over here. And okay, where's the, the conservatives, independents, working families? It's, it's a two-party system. And when you go in there to run, say if you're a Republican to run against the status quo Republican, right, right away, the Republicans, that, the committee people that control the process will try and manipulate it, will actually lie to you. And this is the process we can take back through the committee man or the precinct captain positions. People don't know how easy it is to get involved in the party process. And that's one of the first things to do, and you can, it's very easy to do. Um, I've te- taught to do it for years. We've been on the Republican committee ourselves and the politicians get upset because you're broken into their legal little secret society that's supposed to be in the hands of the people. Absolutely. And so what I'm saying is till there can be proof that's not, that's in the mainstream media or a mainstream media like Fox 
to release certain things. Like there was an interview last night with Sean Hannity and Dr. Malone. I'm not going to mention it, but Sean was afraid to really ask Dr. Malone any questions. Literally, it was like almost censored. So if you have Fox being censored for the truth, or at least the other side of the truth, how do you ever expect election fraud to go as far as people who are going on Rumble, people who are going to conservative networks that are even more right than Fox to really give proof? Because I know you say they're there, those election things are there, David, but till you bring proof, you're not going to bring the center in to understand there has to be a reform. Well, that's where it starts at a grassroots level. If we don't take it back at a grassroots, everybody's like distracted with Trump, yet they don't even know who their own elected officials are that affects their life 10 times more. And, and, you know, these people live within five blocks of your house. They represent you at your party and decide it gets on the ballot all the way up to the president. That's pretty significant. And it's really easy to get involved in these positions. So, you know, I look at that as the, the grassroots diagnosis, how I figured that, you know, OK, this can be uh, maybe done here, but you need participation. You need less than uh, maybe one percent of the population to get involved. But there's so much apathy out there. That's that's the biggest issue we have, too, that there's crazy amounts of apathy and ignorance in the whole system. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, any thoughts to that process? Uh, so so, so what, what like stuff I could put right now in links on Anchor, different places where there's proof that there was erection fraud, where there is like like a link, an article, certain stating that there's election fraud, Mike, then well, not just. Yeah, go Okay, well, what they did was in Georgia, they had one woman turn state's evidence, okay? What, what she did was, um, here's what they did in Georgia, just so, just so, just so you know. Um, they agreed when they did the mail-in ballots to put up cameras. Right. So the ballot boxes wouldn't be stuffed. They found the, the balance boxes were stuffed, and they went back to the video cameras to see at the exact time that happened. Mm -hmm. And then what they did was they got the phone records from the phone company to see whose cell phone was at that point at that time. And that's how they started finding out who these people were. And as they went out to talk to them and interview them, a couple of them decided, well, you know what, I don't want to go to jail for this. And so they, they, they started talking. And in fact, those two Senate elections, the Republicans really won. And they know that. Right. Now, another part of the problem here that hasn't been addressed is the female senator from Georgia, I think her name was McAuliffe or something like that, right? And she ran. She had a staffer, 20-year-old kid. That 20-year-old kid was dating the governor's daughter, Kemp's daughter. He had a car accident. But they found it wasn't a car accident, it was a car bombing. His car blew up. Mm -hmm. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation proved that. And the officer that came out with that funding uh, committed suicide two weeks later. Oh, my gosh. That was a very strong message to, this, to the governor of Georgia not to fool around with these people. Not to, not to, because they just told him, we can get to your daughter if we want. So the, this stuff is out there that there's yep. proof there's election flawed. Yeah. yeah. So why did, what if you put that up on YouTube, election fraud, put this out there, it could be banned right off the thing, even if there are facts. 
How can they ignore facts? <laughs> it's done every day. Well, then they're already saying based on the censoring of Joe Rogan. And David, I want your take on this, that I think Rogan will be out in the week. I think they're going to get rid of him in a week. That's my belief. I think he's going to get they're going to they're going to fire him, Spotify, or they're going to have him resign and move on. And his contract's gone and he'll be back just doing his stuff on a network like Rumble. I really believe this could happen. Oh, it's, it's 100 percent. You're talking about a trillion dollar drug industry that needs to push a certain narrative. You know, the doctors, the frontline doctors testified in this, that recent hearing with I just sent you a link to that. Uh, Mike, uh, that Senate hearing is a five-hour hearing. It's a, it's a half-an-hour video. I'm not sure you can share it in your link here if you get it to them. But yes, Jared, I'd like to test- put all these facts out there, especially on Rumble and then especially in yeah. the podcast end because, you know, this is the point. I want to do what exactly Joe Rogan does. I want to talk to everyone's side, and I'm not telling you what my political point of view because of, we're really living in a a communist time, a, a uh, Chinese they, they keep playing what's happening in China and Beijing. We are in Beijing in the United States right now. What's happening? Well, it's, it's been that way for the past 40, 50 years. It's just progressively getting worse. Yeah. It's just people are, are just a little bit waking up. And that's how the system works. Take a little bit of rights. Take a little bit. Take a little bit. And they won't notice it. You do a little bit of time, you won't notice it. You know, back to the, the, the frontline doctors in regards to the, um, the drug companies, they even said, the doctors testified in this hearing, saying that the drug companies are depicting treatment, not the doctors. And that is what's going on. But what holds them accountable? You always look at the accountability. Voting has never fixed anything. Um, So we have to go back to the basic concepts of founding father concepts, back to the committee man, precinct captain, start investigating the local grand jury, because people don't know. When they're sitting as a grand jurist, they can fire their own prosecuting attorney. And that actually has happened here in New York State. And when the mob ran the whole government, the, the elected officials in downstate New York were all the mob, the Irish mob. They were elected as judges, police chiefs, uh, the mayors, the senators. They all were elected into office uh, as you know masters of us. And they didn't know what to do. So the county grand jury in New York County fired their own prosecuting attorney because he belonged to the mob hired somebody they trusted, and they cleaned house. So if that was done before, can it be done here? Regards to election fraud in Georgia, when I was investigating that, I said, I'm going to look at the Georgia State Grand Jury Manual. And sure enough, it says right in the Georgia State Grand Jury Manual that the grand jury is supposed to police over the elections. Why aren't they doing that? Because they don't know they have the power to do so. Because you know no prosecuting attorney is going to do it. But we, the people, have to take that initiative and take that charge and realize when you're sitting as a grand jurist, you're an independent branch. You're an independent body of people to protect people from government. And that's your duty. And, you know, I got a website out there to educate it. And uh, we have attorneys here to back people up on that. If, if anybody's on a grand jury and the government says, no, you can't do that, they need to reach out to us and, and contact and say, look, it, that's, that's not what the law says. And I think the politicians are really scared of this grand jury process. We found a case in uh, California. It was on the Dayton University website. And where grand juries just started investigating one county in California, half popped out of office the minute they started the investigation. So there's something really scary about the grand jury that um, it's pretty, pretty influential. Antoine Scalia in a case called U.S. versus, versus Williams stated like 70 other cases in there. 